I would much rather them be saying, I want to grow another 200,000 worth of revenue, or I want to take my profit from 23% to 28%, rather than this uh, focus on, you know, I want to have so many doors, because the number of doors has no bearing on profitability. Welcome, Closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is Season 2 on Sales. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and every week, I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100 units or 1,000, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I'm talking with Bob Walters, aka the godfather of property management from Australia and New Zealand. Bob was an early pioneer and really jump-started the professionalization of property management in Australia and New Zealand by founding and growing LPMA. That's Leading Property Managers of Australia and LPM and NZ, Leading Property Managers of New Zealand. This is basically the Australian version of NARPM, more or less in a nutshell. And he's personally consulted for 300 plus management companies. He's trained more than 25,000 property management professionals in that part of the world. And he's built multiple rent rolls to thousands of doors. He's a keynote speaker. But most importantly to me right now, this man is the MC at the up and coming PM Grow Summit that's going to be taking place in San Diego in 2018. We're honored to have Bob joining us for that event and emceeing it and speaking. This guy has so much experience. He's a first great host of his own events. I've been, I've spoken at one of Bob's events. It's a first rate, top notch experience, and it's a pleasure to have him over in our neck of the woods and seeing what we're up to. Today, specifically, we're going to be talking to Bob about rent roll growth and how property management entrepreneurs can accelerate overall growth by having a really tight sales process. Welcome to the show, Bob. Oh, g'day, Jordan. Glad to be with you. With all that, uh, with that wonderful introduction, I feel like I'm under pressure from the beginning. Uh, well, well, I wouldn't have you on if I didn't think you could deliver, Bob. <laughs> let's, let's get into a little <laughs> bit of your background. How did you get into the industry? Well, that might take up the whole podcast, just that <laughs> one. But uh, 30 seconds or less, Bob. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I've been in the industry now 45 years. I started um, in the industry as a junior and uh, built my way up to be a property manager and then uh, to lead a property management team. And then uh, I went into sales for a few years and then opened up my own company in 1980. I built up that uh, property management business from 1980 to 1990, uh, grew just under a 1,000 properties during that time. And then uh, since that time, I've been CEO of a franchise group uh, I've been the head of training for one of the major real estate institutes in Australia. 
I've been consulting since the 90s. Along the way, I've uh, grown uh, a couple of other property management businesses. And so that's probably about 30 seconds or so. That's uh, the headlines of what I've been up to. What do you like about the industry, Bob? What's kept you in property management for this long? I think what's kept me in the business is the fact that the industry is always evolving. And from, I suppose, a selfish point of view, for me, it's probably the easiest and fastest way to build wealth because in Australia, property management businesses are extremely valuable. To give you an example, where I come from in Sydney, you can find that your property management business is worth about four times your annual management fees, which means that uh, with my average property here in Sydney, if I annualise that fee income and multiply it by four, it means that every property I have under management is worth about $6,000 to the asset value of the business. And so if you grow a 1,000 managements, that's uh, in fact worth about $6 million. So I suppose what's kept me in the business, apart from the fact of uh, the business constantly evolving, is the fact that it's really a fast way to build a strong retirement fund. Really, really strong multiples. That's different than in the States. And having interacted with a number of American property managers, do you have any thoughts or perspective on why that valuation is so much higher over than in Australia as opposed to in in the United States? Off the top of your head, is there anything you can think of that explains that? Uh, That's a difficult question because there are different market and, and business conditions between the two countries. But certainly in Australia... The industry down here recognises that property management is a constant revenue stream, um, providing you're doing a reasonable job. It's constant cash flow. It's not subject of the uh, to too much of the ups and downs that go on in the economy, because there's always going to be demand for rental properties. Because of this constant cash flow, you've also got a business that carries no debtors. Uh, You get paid every month for what you do. And because in Australia, well, the industry is a little bit different in that most property management is done by licensed real estate agencies. And so most property management businesses are mixed businesses. They're sales and property management. We certainly have an increase and an increasing trend towards uh, property management-only businesses, but most property management in Australia is done by uh, combined sales and property management businesses, and therefore a lot of business owners, because they're salespeople or ex-salespeople, they use property management as a feeding ground for their sales businesses, and that's why I think they're so highly valued not only the constant cash flow, not only the protection from the ups and downs of the economy, uh, it's also the fact that it feeds their sales businesses. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Certainly a lot of those are are common attributes and it's a laundry list of reasons to get into property management. Now, if you're telling me that 
a thousand unit portfolio could be valued at $6 million. I don't know about you, but what's crossing my mind is, well, how quickly can we get to a thousand doors? When you, people come to you and they want to grow, they're telling you that their ambition is to get to a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, whatever it may be. I know you know that a lot of folks aren't necessarily ready and they have a naive perspective of both what is involved in growing and their ability to actually grow based on the current health of their business. So in your opinion, when is a company ready to grow? What are the prerequisites? Well, the absolute prerequisites are that the business is sufficiently systemized so that it runs like a well-oiled machine and in fact, the, the customer service delivery is certainly uh, as best as it can be. Um, so that if you've got a systemized business and you've got happy clients and customers, then you're probably ready to press the go button. Now, everybody would love to pat themselves on the back and say, hey, yeah, that's me. Can you give me some specific examples or scenarios or red flags for knowing that you're not ready just to flesh that out more? Well, you know, you're certainly not ready to grow if you've got thing if you've got staffing issues in your business, if you've got churn going on in your property management team, if you've got a lack of systems so that all the processes in the business um, are not properly documented nor complied with, or if you're getting complaints about your service delivery. They're all red flags that you're not really ready to press go yet. Ah, you mentioned churn, and that's really partly what I was looking for because all of those factors in large part could be summed up in churn. Now, there are other factors like fee maximization, et cetera, but churn is a great one because you cannot outgrow churn. In your mind, what is a, what's an acceptable churn rate and what's kind of the, the churn rate that is just an obvious red flag to you if you're looking at some of these books? In Australia, it will fluctuate depending upon what's going on in the sales market, but usually you would get anywhere between 5 and 15% of your portfolio would turn over each year. Got it. So if somebody is at, say, 10%, do you feel like that's, uh, that's a low enough number for them to feel like it's not necessarily a red flag and they can kind of move on to looking at growth? Yes, as I said, it will fluctuate depending upon what's happening in the sales market. I mean, if it's a strong sales market, if if prices are going up, you'll get a higher number of um, landlord clients wanting to to sell their investments. So as I said, it, it, it does fluctuate. I suppose being pragmatic about it all, it's all about focusing on things you can control. I mean, none of us can control, you know, the natural movement of the actual, of the actual economy and what's happening with the sales market. It's really about being able to control your service delivery so that um, even though you're going to get churn, the focus really needs to be on, you know, if you're losing properties from your portfolio, um, to be identifying very clearly uh, the reasons why you're losing that business. Um, that's where we've certainly found uh, in a lot of businesses we've gone into as consultants that um, they're not always measuring their losses uh, accurately and in many cases they're not verifying the reasons for those losses. And so 
Um, if properties are lost because they're being sold or owners are reoccupying or things like that, you know, they're all things out of your control. But the key thing is identifying, are, are you losing properties because of mismanagement? Yep, totally makes sense. If you're going to lose the property, the double loss is to actually have no idea why as opposed to at least learning something profitable from it. Just to add to that, you know, I'd certainly be uh, reminding those who are listening that you need to be um, you know, counting your gains and, and identifying the source of your new business, but also carefully calculating your losses and importantly, um where those losses are going and what's causing them. 100% totally makes sense. Loss tracking is a big win. It's something a lot of folks don't do. So let's move on to growth now. Let's say that you're qualified, you run a tight ship, and you're ready to grow. Bob, you and I both know there are so many different options out there. It can be overwhelming. Should I focus on digital marketing? Should I focus on realtor relationships? Should I focus on using the agency side of my business for lead gen mailers? Do you have any kind of a, an overall framework for helping to clarify where a property management entrepreneur should start in focusing their efforts on role growth? Well, I suppose the logical starting point is identifying the, the capacity of the business to be able to grow and at what speed because um, when it comes to capacity, I haven't met a business owner yet that hasn't wanted to grow their their business, but in many cases, they don't have the resources to put in place to put boots on the ground to get out there and grow. So obviously, the strategies that the business is going to use is going to be largely dependent upon uh, the human resources available and how much money you've got to allocate to, to business development. The last time I sat down to work, work out um, how many strategies we could think of to actually grow a property management business. We had about 83 different proven ways to actually go and find new business, but it's like a big jigsaw puzzle. You know, you just got to put a piece in at a time and not every piece works in every puzzle. You know, it's going to depend depend on different marketplaces, and as I said, it's going to depend on um, the resources that that particular business has. What are some of your favorite growth strategies of those eighty three that you just mentioned? I suppose one obvious one that uh, uh, that is a, a biggie in Australia, and it certainly may not be a biggie in the US, though, is as I mentioned earlier, because most property management um, businesses in Australia are also real estate agencies. Uh, they have real estate sales teams, and it's really about maximising the relationship between sales and property management. That's making sure that they they capture every every possible lead from the sales side of their business, uh, particularly people that go through sales OFIs and things like that. But, you know, I'm, I'm fully aware of the fact that, you know, most of the people listening to this podcast are going to be property management only businesses. So in saying that, I mean, one of my personal favourites, of course, is is online marketing and, of course, I'm very much aware 
that you and Alex are the gurus in that space, so you probably don't want any advice from me. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Guru is a heavy title. Is a heavy title, and you know, digital marketing obviously is a big can of worms. But on the topic that you just brought up, you're right in pointing out that while agency property acquisition through the agency side of the business is probably a bigger deal over in Australia. Here, it's almost like there's a need for the inverse, right? Right now, we're in a strong real estate market. There's been a lot of sell-off. A lot of folks that are doing well with growth are going sideways. They're gaining properties, but they're just backfilling what they're losing. Now, when they lose those properties due to sales, some companies are getting absolutely gutted because they're not capturing any of those sales. Other companies are able to pretty much go sideways in terms of revenue because they are efficiently capturing those sales. Regardless, most people that are listening to this podcast don't have a really aggressive sales division within their business. I think it's an overlooked opportunity, but culturally, there's such a big difference between property management and sales. In your opinion, what can the property management side of the business learn from the sales function to be able to get better organizationally? Well, it's it's really about you know lead capture and lead nurturing and making sure that you've got that you're using uh, the technology that's out there. I mean, one thing I find in Australia that is extremely frustrating is that if I use that $6,000 per property analogy, you know, that every potential lead that you get into property management, if it's worth $6,000, often we find that leads are squandered you know, that they're not properly recorded, um, that um, they're not uh, followed through correctly. Um, you know, they're, you know, written down in, they're written down on, um, in people's diaries and on post-it notes and things like that. And they're not, they're not using the technology that's out there to record the leads, to nurture them, to follow through. Importantly, that to have properly managed management representatives that know how to sell their services because property managers are notoriously, they're more the mechanics of the business rather than the, rather than the sales agents. Now, one thing I really learned over the years is not to put growth in the hands of property managers. Growth needs to be in the hands of specialised um, people who know how to sell, and so they're all the things that you can, that property managers can learn from sales is the fact that you know that they capture leads, that they uh, follow up on those leads, that they stay in touch with people, that when people are ready to make the decision, that they're there to uh, to be able to win the business, and they know how to get it across the line. Absolutely. So you're talking about a business development manager. You're talking about somebody with the right attitude, skills, and motivations to actually 
go and hunt. And one of the big things that I've noticed is that in Australia, when people talk about BDMs, they're talking about people that are doing outbound prospecting. Whereas stateside, when property management entrepreneurs talk about hiring BDM, oftentimes they're talking about them primarily handling inbound leads, which is great, right? Somebody's going to pick up the phone, somebody's going to call people back. But the mindset behind handling inbound versus actually proactively hunting is, is pretty different in my view. So let's just talk briefly about this whole issue of the BDM. For folks that have thought about or tried unsuccessfully to hire a BDM, what are some key points of advice that you would have for actually doing that successfully? I think think one of the key pieces of advice I'd give in terms of business development is that you certainly can't put growth in the hands of property management managers except in exceptional circumstances where you have a property manager who also knows how to sell but you know very I've come across very few that have both skill sets so in in terms of hiring BDMs it really comes down to hiring someone that is not necessarily from a property management background not an ex-property manager or, or anything like that often it will come from an ideal candidate for business development for me would be someone who maybe wants to wants a career in real estate sales but is maybe not necessarily um, ready for that particular move yet or someone that's come from a very much customer-focused industry you know, such as um, sales of other products and services, hospitality, etc. It's really, and, and someone who's really hungry and has high energy. You don't need a BDM with a lot of technical skill about property management. Over the years when I've hired BDMs, we find that we can teach them enough about property management to get themselves through. Um, we can teach them property management in a week. Um, you're obviously looking for someone who's got high energy, hungry, and has a, has a customer service focus about them. And importantly, that you structure their package so it's highly commission-based um, and focused on the dollar value of the transactions that they're uh, signing up. So I love what you said earlier, the metaphor that you don't have the mechanic come out front to sell cars. You need the service center, you need the sales reps out front, but if you switch roles, it's going to be a disaster. What would you say to the person that undervalues the importance of sales skills? The person that says, hey, the best, most qualified person to sell the car is the mechanic because he knows all the ins and outs of the cars. He knows the exact stats on zero to 60 and tire pressure and how long this car is going to last in the certain conditions, X, Y, Z. How would you describe the real, tangible, demonstrable value that somebody with a sales background and a sales skill set represents to somebody that is that is skeptical of those soft skills. It's really coming down to recognizing the difference between features and benefits. 
a mechanic who's trying to, you know, if they swap roles with the salespeople on the showroom floor, you put a mechanic on the showroom floor, um, certainly the mechanic's going to be able to describe all the features of a vehicle, uh, but not necessarily hone in on the benefits. I mean, certainly I find that with landlords looking for property managers, they're looking for someone just to solve their problems, not necessarily tell them um, everything about legislation and um, all the health and safety issues and those sorts of things. That's why I pay a property manager for that. So I, I just want someone that can clearly demonstrate to me how they're going to solve my problems and how they're going to maximise the value of my property investment. And a lot of property managers um, uh, miss the boat on that one. So that makes a ton of sense to me. Layering on top of that is just the available time, right? Somebody with a dedicated job is responsible for actually doing those follow-ups and therefore they happen in a timely fashion as opposed to it being done in between 20 other functions and just kind of falling by the wayside. The other side of that is when hiring a BDM goes wrong, one of the first things that I see is the comp model, not necessarily in terms of the behaviors that it is incentivizing, because that's kind of some nuance that you can tweak, but that kind of started off with good intention. The first place I see it go wrong is with the owner that is just fundamentally cheap and doesn't want to pay the right person the right amount of money. Have you seen this this problem before yourself? Uh, all the time. You know, it's certainly a case that you get what you pay for. But um, see, often, certainly in Australia, as I said, they all want to grow their businesses. Um, they'll get the bright idea that they've got to go and hire a BDM and they'll uh, go and put the person at a desk. They'll give them a business card, a laptop computer and uh, maybe a listing kit um, and just say, look, you know, go out there and find me ten doors a month or fifteen doors a month, yeah, you know, without you know properly inducting them into the business, without um, giving them the right sort of tools that they're going to need to to be able to win that business. Um, and in many cases, they'll go and hire them on a base salary and in some cases on a commission that's really based on the wrong formulas. For example, where I see often in Australia, and I don't know whether it also happens in the US, but where what happens in Australia often is they'll give a BDM a base salary and a layer of commission over the top, but it's a commission based on each door that they bring in and not basing the commission on the actual value of the transaction that they do. Then the business owner uh, wonders why their, their BDM signing up business at a discount because the commission structure is wrong. Well, I, I think what you just described is absolutely the case. I mean, you're basically just saying you've incentivized this to get you doors and they can bring you a pile of garbage and still get paid because of that compensation model as opposed to actually tying tying it to profit, really. Yeah, and you see a lot of business owners that will get excited that their BDMs brought in, you know, 10 properties for that month. But 
fails to go and analyse the dollar value of those transactions to the business. In other words, they just count the doors, not the dollars. And and that's a key thing that I've that I've sort of learnt over the years. That certainly in my early career in the business, it was all rent roll growth was all about you know having the biggest portfolio in town. You know, it's sort of a testosterone <laughs> testosterone right. thing. Um, are saying, well, you know, I've got the num- greatest number of properties under management. But um, over the years, going into a lot of these companies as a consultant, I've certainly found that bigger is not always better. Uh, I've seen some big companies that that are still in the red in their um, profit and loss account simply because you know, they have too many staff or, or, the, or the, the quality of the properties and the fee revenue is very poor. You know, over the years, my philosophies about growth are more around growing, growing the dollar value revenue of the business rather than counting doors. Obviously, at conferences, you hear people talk saying, you know, they want to grow another 100 properties this year or they want to grow another 200 properties this year. I would much rather them be saying, you know, I want to grow another 200,000 worth of revenue or another 500,000 worth of revenue or I want to take my profit from 23% to 28%. I'd much rather have those discussions with people rather than this uh, focus on, on, you know, I want to have so many doors because the number of doors has no bearing on profitability. That's a great point, Bob. So being a software entrepreneur with my background, when I'm talking to other software entrepreneur peers, what we tend to talk about is MRR, monthly recurring revenue. And obviously, that's a direct analog and application to the property management business as well, because it's also recurring revenue. But clearly, focusing on the dollars is more useful than focusing on doors, because some of your doors are going to be highly profitable. Some of them are going to be you're absolutely taking a bath on, and a lot of them are somewhere in the middle. So there certainly is way too much focus on that. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about the training aspect, the type of person that hires a BDM and they don't train them, and then that person underperforms, and then they blame them, they fire them, and then they come back and say, hey, I tried the BDM thing. It doesn't work. Insert whatever the tactic or strategy is, poor execution is often the rationale for blaming a tactic or strategy that is otherwise quite effective for other entrepreneurs. With the BDM and with training in particular, one of the reasons that I see a failure to train is that folks just want to make the problem go away. They're not into sales. It's not in their DNA. They're not particularly good at it themselves. And so therefore, when they hire somebody, of course, they don't train them. Because quite frankly, the training wouldn't be very good. What does someone in that situation that knows that they have that deficiency do so as to not basically be setting that person up for failure? Well, what they need to do is if they don't have the training tools and the expertise internally, they've got to make sure that that investment in in that BDM needs to be allocated towards external training. So that person then needs to be sent out to um, wherever they 
can send them to get good quality uh, sales training externally. Now, do you think that that training needs to be property management specific or do you think good sales training is good sales training? Yeah, the latter. Good sales training is good sales training. Selling is selling. Um, Selling property management services, selling real estate, selling insurance, selling cars, whatever the case might be, it's all selling. Uh, It's only a matter of a change of a bit of terminology here and there. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm all about the cross-application of knowledge from other related domains. So when it works, if hiring that BDM is actually working well, in your experience for the folks that you have trained, what kind of a results have you seen folks from get from hiring a BDM? How many doors have you seen a a successful BDM bring in on an annual or a monthly basis when it actually works well? Um, In in my personal career, in a past life, when I I built up a uh, property management business from 400 properties to 2,600 over a sort of two and a half year period, the best BDM we had was a real firecracker, um, a young lady who was averaging 25 to 30 a month. Wow. And this is prospecting or this is being fed from the agency? Do you, do you recall offhand where those came from? Combination of both. But um, in that same business, I mean, if I can just give you give you a little bit more detail about that story, here was a company here in Sydney that, as I said, when I went in there, they had 400 properties under management and and that's sort of an average size property management department here in Sydney. Uh, but the owner of that business was an ex-sales agent and he thought like a sales agent uh, and he had this, uh, this big growth goal um, Initially, he wanted me to um, add 1,100 properties to the portfolio in 18 months, and so that was quite a, a big, quite a big growth goal for me. Because at that stage, this is going back, this is going back about 17 years. Back then, I, I still had some limiting beliefs about how fast you could grow a property management business, but um, we started off hiring our first BDM and we were very lucky that that's when we hit the jackpot with this particular person and she was getting you know really uh, fantastic growth and so not far down the track we then hired BDM number two then BDM number three uh, and we got up to five BDMs and they each they each had a target back then a door target of 15 doors per month each. We were growing gross growth uh, of 75 plus doors a month. Since that time, as I said, my focus has gone more towards growing revenue, not the actual uh, number of properties under management. But back then, uh, the owner of that business um, was purely focused on, you know, growing the doors. 
you know, what I learned from that experience is if you make good hiring decisions when it comes to business development staff, you put them in the right environment with the right tools and strategies and training that you get one right, then you get the second one right, the third one right. It's, it's like building a sales team. On the flip side, though, you do find occasionally that you think you've um, you've hired a firecracker for the property management business development team and they end up being a fizzer. So occasionally you'll make the wrong hiring decision, but if you get most of your decisions right and with those other um, those other uh, factors in place, then it's not particularly hard to grow the rent roll in a very accelerated way. So what advice would you have for getting the right person for recruiting and screening? Well, certainly, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's about finding someone who's not necessarily from the industry. They can be from the industry, but not necessarily. Um, But it's a matter of finding someone who has got a great attitude, lots of energy, is trainable, is hungry for success, and making sure then that um, you foster that by putting them in an environment where they're not just left to die on the vine, you know, that, they're, um, that they have a set plan in place for activity as well as productivity you know, often we give them productivity goals, whether it's a revenue target or a or a property target. But it's a matter of regulating. It's a matter of regulating um, and setting targets on their activity as well. Because if you set activity targets and they complete them, we know that productivity will then occur. I love what you just said. And guys, as you're listening to this right now, think about the form of empowerment of being able to troubleshoot the why. The what is, did they bring in enough doors? Did they bring in enough revenue? But that's not the why. The why is exactly what you just said. It's tied up in those sub-activities of follow-ups, outreach attempts, etc. And unless you're actually tracking that, you have the ability to either be happy or sad about the outcome, but you have no ability to diagnose why. Well said on that point. So talking on the micro level about the actual presentation skills, in your mind, what are the basic elements of an effective presentation uh, in front of a set of owners? Well, I suppose the basic um, expectations would be knowing uh, the right questions to ask at the right time. Once again, this is, comes back to basic selling. It's really about knowing the right questions more so than knowing all the answers. So it's about pre-qualifying the client to understand, you know, if they're looking for a property manager, you know, what are they looking for from a property manager? When are they looking at making the decision? Who else are they going to be talking to? You know, what is it about the property that they think will appeal to tenants? Um, why did they choose to make contact with the company, etc.? Um, so it's all knowing all these pre-qualifying questions and then carefully listening for the answers and knowing what lights them up and focusing on just the things that are important to them. Some BDMs get carried away with 
wanting to demonstrate every aspect of their services and, you know, they turn up with a a 50-page listing kit and want to go through every little aspect of what they do in property management when, in fact, uh, what they're doing is selling themselves out of a deal. You know, it's really identifying what's, what's really lighting the people up and focusing on them if there is any resistance along the way to know how to identify it and neutralise it and finally to know how to close the deal, how to ask the right closing questions to walk away with the signed management agreement. Can you walk me through any of those, those questions? Are there any that come to mind to kind of set things up in the right way? I know in our business, I mean, we, we have a sort of standard checklist that we follow whenever we are dealing with a prospective client and there's a whole bunch of uh, questions on that checklist that we ask and uh, get answers for and tick off as we go through just to make sure that we're not missing anything you know and, and, and I'll give you I'll give you one one quick example you know where it might be that you've had somebody contact you about uh, your property management services, and the BDM goes bouncing into a response and starts rattling off, you know, how wonderful they are at property management and how they can help them uh, and all the things that they can do, only to find that the client uh, may be putting his property on the rental market uh, late next year. And if they ask a few simple questions in the beginning, you know, they can determine, you know, the actual motivation of the person and, you know, if it's a preliminary inquiry about, you know, what the company does and uh, wanting a little bit of market information about, you know, what's happening in the rental market and things like that, that they don't waste their time and a whole lot of the person's time rattling off about stuff that's not relevant at this point of time. Hmm. So what I hear you saying is you want to have a really tight discovery process of consistently asking the highest number of questions that are going to both give you context, but are also progressively going to build relational investment as somebody is disclosing more and more about themselves, about their property, etc. That makes a ton of sense to me. And, and it's really... Amongst all those questions is a, an absolute need to build up like and trust between the prospective client and and yourself because you can represent the best brand on the planet and you can have the sexiest looking listing presentation kit and the most beautiful set of marketing materials but ultimately, it's still a people business, and if they don't like and trust you, um, you're not going to get the business. Absolutely. Before we go on, I do want to mention our show sponsor, the PM Grow Summit. This is taking place in January 2018, San Diego. Bob is going to be the MC. Incredibly excited to have you there, Bob. Folks, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know about the event. You know you can go get a ticket at pmgrowsummit.com, and you know that you can use the coupon code JORDAN to get $100 off your ticket. Bob, I'd love to hear your take on it. You put on events year after year. How many 
LPMA events do you think you've put on over the years? I know it's probably hard to count, but what's your what's your guess? Well, LPMA has been going for 11 years now. Uh, the New Zealand um, Leading Property Managers has been going for about six years. But prior to that, I was involved with um, one of the state real estate institutes for a number of years. And so it, to simply answer your question, uh, I've been putting on property management conferences since the uh, late 90s. And so probably I've put on about 30. So you've got a lot of perspective in that time and you've done a lot of selling. You've probably written a lot of sales copy to get people there, but you've also seen it firsthand attending these events and you know the impact being a property management entrepreneur yourself. If you were just going to succinctly describe what somebody can walk away with from a well-run property management conference, what would you say it is in a nutshell? Well, I think it's a matter for anyone who comes along the conference to be really open-minded about um, when it comes to growth, the fact that um, people come in with maybe some preconceived ideas or some limiting beliefs about um, their ability to grow or at the speed to which they can grow. I would really believe that at the PM Grow Summit, you're going to be listening to not necessarily experienced uh, platform presenters, but practitioners, practitioners who have successfully actually done what they're preaching. And to me, that's that's the key thing in, in any conference that you go to is the fact that you're hearing from people that have walked in those shoes, that have um, that have had those challenges, that have had a lot of success, but likewise a lot of failures as well because you can learn just as much from failure as you can from success. So it's really it's really about hearing from people that have said that have walked those shoes that that have had the successes, had the failures, and we know that these things work in real life, that they're not just theory or or textbook-type things. Now, as the conference host, I've been in your shoes. You've done it way more times than I have, but I certainly know that from my perspective, there really is a fine art of both getting those practitioners but also getting people outside of the industry that are willing to care enough about tailoring what they're saying to our industry. I'm thinking of one example last year where we did we failed to do that. We brought in a very qualified, competent, professional speaker that more or less bombed because they did not expend the effort and energy required to tailor their message to our audience. How have you navigated through that when you're recruiting speakers from outside of the industry at your own events? Um, Well, very much the case of um, talking to that speaker well in advance of the event and giving them a thorough um, knowledge of the types of people that are going to be in the room and what people want to get out of that person's session so that they can contextualise the material that they're going to speak about. One one of the problems with hiring non-industry speakers is that you can find someone that gets up on stage extremely motivating and entertaining, but... Uh, for me, all that motivation 
tends to get sucked up through the air conditioning ducts <laughs> at the hotel because often by the time people get out the front door, the motivation's sort of dissipated. And, and I know there's a balance there. I think uh, any good conference needs its mix of, of industry, good industry content and general business and motivational speakers as well. But with motivational speakers, I've just found that um, as I said, they're there for entertainment value often, but there's not always a lot of take-home value because, as we all know, um, motivation comes from inside. It's really a matter of you know, internalising all that because nobody can successfully motivate anybody else. It's got to come from inside. You know, it is a really tough balance. I have hesitated in the past for bringing folks in that are more on the motivational or the personal development side of things. I place value on the personal development world, training. You talked earlier about limiting beliefs. Those are things that have really helped me, but there certainly are a subset of people that feel like that that is fluff. And unless we're talking about something technical or very explicit, it is of dubious or questionable value. So it certainly is kind of a a tightrope to navigate through that. But I think at the end of the day, we're trying to deliver people an experience where they can walk away saying, I learned things that I can take away on day one. Like tomorrow, I've learned things that I can implement in my business. But I also have more clarity on the path that on a one-year, two-year, five-year time horizon that I can better course correct. I've got more clarity on where I'm heading, and I know the levers that I need to pull over the next couple of years, they're going to take me to that long-term goal, whether that's a 1,000 doors or a $10 million exit, whatever it may be. I want to transition now to the rapid fire section of our interview. I'm going to just ask you a series of questions and I just want guttural answers from you. The first of those questions is this, Bob, who do you learn from? Certainly every time uh, I put on a conference, um, I learn from every single speaker, you know, one thing or another. Over the years, I've I've had various mentors, um, uh, I suppose none of which would people listening to this podcast would, would know, but, um, you know, I, I worked in my early years when I started in the industry. I had a, then had my first boss who was my mentor for about the first 20 years of my real estate career. When I worked for that um, company that had the fast growth aspirations, uh, the owner of that company was one of Australia's leading um, real estate identities, and I certainly um, looked up to that person and um, learnt a lot from from that person. What books have impacted you the most over the years? Well, if I go back to my early career, my first boss gave me this book called Up the Organisation. It was written by a guy called Robert Townsend, who who turned Avis Rent a Car around from being almost out of business to become, you know, massively successful. And that book just has a lot of just simple tips and principles, business principles to follow. And there's been many rewrites of that book since, uh, but I still refer to it from time to time. In my early career, 
when I was sort of starting to get into more of a leadership role. I was given the book How to Win Friends and Influence People, which I think is still relevant today. Probably one of the best books I've read on selling was um, a book called Influence by uh, Dr. Robert Cialdini. He's an American um, oh, it's a classic, co- yeah. college I- professor. And I, I, I was just fascinated, fascinated uh, reading that book about um, the universal rules of influence, why, why people reflexively say yes to a request without thinking about it and all the research behind that. I just found that fascinating. All of the the micro-influence and even the subliminal stuff that we're not aware of. Yeah, I completely agree. Bob, if you could do it all over again, what advice would you have given yourself at the very beginning of your career? Well, one simple piece of advice I'd give to uh, a young Bob would be um, that I would understand the value of a property management business in terms of its asset value. Certainly in my younger years, I'm working for other people and uh, I had some degree of success in uh, growing property management businesses, but in fact, um, I was growing somebody else's asset, not my own. And so uh, if I could wind the clock back, I would have started much earlier at building my own business rather than building someone else's business. And I know that there is uh, a big difference in asset value between Australian PM businesses and American ones, but certainly where I come from, you know, if you can, if you can build a six million dollar asset, um, over a five or ten year period, um, as well as make some profit along the way, that to me is, um, pretty good business to be in. Yeah, I'd say you're doing well. Here, The next question is actually related. In your mind, when you think about the marketing and sales expenditure, how much is too much to pay for a new property management contract? I'm not talking about buying a portfolio, but if you tabulate things and you look at a marketing campaign and you look at like per door, your overall client acquisition cost, how much is too much to pay in your mind? Um, that's a really tough question because um, I suppose it depends on the property itself because not all properties uh, are of equal value and sometimes I said some are more valuable and better to acquire than others. I suppose if I could try and quantify it a bit, I would say that you're if you're paying anything north of half a year's management fees to actually acquire that asset, then that's too much. Okay. Now, that's really interesting. I've never had anybody give that specific answer before. Talk me through why that why that's a sensible way to um, look at it in your mind. I think there's too big a gap between Australia and the US in answering this one because if I use the Australian example for a minute and say that here in Sydney, with a property management business, 
if someone will pay you four times annual management fee revenue to acquire that business. So if someone's prepared to pay $6,000 for each property on your portfolio and there's a ready number of people that are prepared to, to do that, then you might say, well, as long as you spent less than six grand acquiring it, then you would be better off that way. I mean, that's how I would back into it, Bob. That's a sensible way to look at it in my mind. you got the lifetime value and your customer acquisition cost is obviously purely a function of that. The way that most people look at it is just emoting, emoting, thinking about the dollars coming out of my wallet to spend on sales and advertising. And on that sense, you know, we'd all love the number to be as low as possible. You, the number that you mentioned earlier, six months worth of Let's call it revenue, not just management fees, because I can orient around that easier. If we take $200 as your average revenue per property per month on average, and that's including all ancillary fees, not just uh, strictly management fee income, multiply that times six, we have $1,200. That's on the high side of what I see folks being willing to spend. But again, there's a difference between the two markets. So that, that seems like a reasonable approach, even though I've haven't heard anybody articulate it quite that way. So we're going to dig into that a little bit more at the PM Growth Summit. We're doing a benchmarking study to look at the norms of customer acquisition cost, lifetime value, et cetera. So hopefully we'll have some more data by then. My last question for you is this, Bob. You mentioned earlier that if you could give yourself a piece of advice, the advice that you would give was to put yourself in the owner category sooner to value the asset. You've been an entrepreneur for many, many years. You've helped and worked with many entrepreneurs. You've really shaped the lives and the work of a lot of entrepreneurs. So in your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred? I think they're bred because... It really comes down to the environment that they spend their time in, um, particularly in the early formative years and who they associate with Um, because, in my view, Australian schools often have school teachers there that um, sometimes are not as encouraging as they could be for people to to take risks, to perhaps be non-conforming and to be ambitious um, in what they this do. This is the tall poppy syndrome, right? Yeah, yeah. I always believe that, you know, the best lessons are learnt from people who are successful and sometimes i found that... Um, some school teachers are, are people, ones that are actually shaping um, the minds of our future adults are, peop- are people that have not been successful themselves. They can sometimes not be the most uh, encouraging of people to, um, to be entrepreneurs, to, to take risks, to think outside the box. Well, that certainly resonates with me. I lean towards the born answer, but I I would certainly be a complete ingrate to not recognize the multitude of lifelong influences that put me in a position to both desire to be an entrepreneur, but also to be able to manifest 
that vision successfully. So I think there certainly is a balance between the two. I'm always interested in hearing the opinion of each guest. I appreciate you sharing, and I appreciate you coming on the show. But even more than that, I appreciate you flying halfway across the world to be the MC and a keynote speaker at the 2018 PM Growth Summit. Bob, I appreciate you coming on today. I'm looking forward to seeing you in San Diego. Thanks again for your time today. A pleasure, and I'm certainly looking forward to uh, to being over there with you guys as well. 